Welcome to Talking Feds, a legal affairs roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and currently the legal affairs columnist for the LA Times opinion page. The virus has drowned out nearly all daily news, but the Supreme Court's term, transformed like everything else, proceeds apace, and the court will be issuing decisions in six or more blockbuster cases in the next 10 weeks. We could at any time be getting decisions in important cases involving DACA, the Dreamers program, sexual orientation, and abortion. And the court has scheduled 10 more cases for two weeks of argument in May, available on live audio for the first time, including three cases that involve President Trump's efforts to withhold evidence from Congress and the New York District Attorney. COVID-19 will remain topic number one here at Talking Feds, but these Supreme Court cases have the potential of transforming society no less than the virus, and we will be paying them serious attention as well, starting today with a close look at the abortion case, June Medical Services versus Russo, which was argued March 4th. It's the most closely watched case on the topic since the appointments of Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh by President Trump, who famously promised in 2016 to appoint pro-life justices who would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. The case brought the court back to its familiar and unwelcome position in the eye of the hurricane as pro-life and pro-choice groups returned to their stations outside the court, while inside, court watchers scrutinized the justices' every word and expression, especially from Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Chief Justice Roberts, who may be the pivotal vote in the case for clues to the outcome. We've been here before, but with the Trump justices having cemented a solidly conservative majority for the first time since Roe v. Wade was decided nearly 50 years ago, the stakes seem higher and the battle more pitched. The statute in June Medical Services versus Russo requires doctors who perform abortions in Louisiana to have the right to admit patients to a hospital within 30 miles of the place where the abortion is performed. Opponents of the statute say it will restrict abortions in Louisiana to one clinic and possibly one abortion provider. We also want to situate the case in the larger sweep of the court's abortion jurisprudence since Roe v. Wade and give listeners a stronger background to the legal landscape that underlies the moral and policy debates about abortion in this country. And we have an ideal set of guests to do it. First, Amy Howe. Amy is the co-founder of SCOTUSblog.com, which is the essential first and often second and third stop for anyone following the court. In the 18 years since its founding, when it was basically a quixotic idea, scotusblog.com has grown under her leadership to be a D.C. and national institution. Amy also personally writes about many of the most important cases there, including Russo. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next. 
Leah Littman, who may be my long-lost cousin, but if so, it would be news to both of us since we only first met last year. But Leah teaches constitutional law at the University of Michigan. She also is one of the co-hosts and creators of Strict Scrutiny, an excellent podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome, Leah. Thanks for having me back, Harry. And finally, we're really honored to be joined today by Walter Dellinger, who has more titles than we have time to tell, but to name a few. He is the Douglas B. Maggs Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law. He's also a previous acting Solicitor General, the government's head lawyer in the Supreme Court, an Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, where he and I first met about 25 years ago. Walter, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Harry. All right, let's dive in. I'd like to try to paint the constitutional debate in broad terms beyond the often picayune points of specific provision in individual statutes. And my premise here is that listeners have a strong sense of where they stand on the pro-life, pro-choice issue, including what criteria, religious, moral, practical, ethical, they bring to bear in reaching the decision. But they maybe have a much less detailed understanding of how the issue plays out in legal and constitutional terms. So let's start here and give both sides their due. Most lawyers' views on the constitutional issue dovetail with their policy views. People who believe the Constitution protects the termination decision tend to be pro-choice personally. People who believe it doesn't tend to be pro-life personally. But there are some people, we've all met them, who are pro-choice, but nevertheless believe the Constitution doesn't protect or speak to the decision to terminate. So put yourself in their position for a moment. What's their best argument on constitutional terms for saying that Roe v. Wade was a misadventure and everything that followed was, and the Constitution just doesn't speak to abortion? Well, I'll take a stab, Harry. I mean, I think the best uh, argument has always been that uh, the Constitution says nothing uh, clear or or says nothing at all about abortion. And secondly, uh, that even if it did, the state has an overriding interest in protecting the, the emerging potential life of the fetus. The short answer reaction to those is that uh, the fundamental liberty uh, guaranteed by the Constitution's Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments surely includes the right to, you know, to, to bodily integrity. I mean, it has been said that uh, compulsory Pregnancy and compulsory childbirth is a nearly totalitarian intervention uh, into a woman's life, leading to the harder question about what, what about the state's interest in, um, in promoting fetal life. And I thought and argued in, in 1989 that, you know, the state never treats the fact that um, 62% of fertilized ovum never implant as a, uh, uh, as a national public health crisis, uh, that at least in terms of the the um, the earliest intervention, if the if the the interest in protecting uh, uh, fetal life is never advanced through less restrictive means, such as making contraception widely available, but that's I think the the, the basic contour of the debate. How, how serious could the state interest be if half of pregnancies already 
self-terminate, then if the state wanted to protect the potential life, it would be coming in in a strong way there, I guess. Yes. Um, yeah. a- Amy and Leah, what, you know, first, how, has Walter put the pro-choice constitutional argument on its most solid footing? Would you want to embellish that at all? And what about the response? I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, and even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has in her time on the court has repeatedly voted to strike down laws restricting abortion, I believe has said that this was probably not the best way to go about it. This being Roe v. Wade or just the whole? Exactly. I think she thought that that Roe was too sweeping uh, and the laws that struck down. I disagree with that, but I'll, I'll let others weigh in first. I think that something that Justice Ginsburg was speaking to was not necessarily about the correctness of the ultimate decision about whether abortion is a constitutionally protected right or not, but instead was the reasoning that the court gave for whether it is a constitutionally protected right or not. Walter alluded to the debate about whether the Constitution protects certain unenumerated rights, rights that aren't specifically listed in the Constitution, and that is, you know, one facet of the debate. I think the problem for the opponents of Roe on that particular debate is that the Constitution doesn't say a lot of different things, many of which people tend to think is either constitutionally protected or prohibited. So, for example, the Constitution doesn't say anything about prohibiting states from compulsory sterilization, like in Buck versus Bell, or the Constitution doesn't say anything specifically about whether out-of-state residents can sue a state in state court. But those have become constitutional Rules. And so the specific critique that, well, the Constitution doesn't explicitly mention abortion has kind of given way to the more narrow one that Walter was suggesting, which is, well, unenumerated rights can't include situations where someone is arguing that they have a right to do something that would harm some other person. And so the argument for abortion not being constitutionally protected has come to depend in large part on an idea that at some point um, an, a fetus becomes an unborn child or person that is entitled to legal protections that prohibit abortion from being a constitutionally protected decision. So I largely agree here. Look, I think you could well have imagined a constitutional state of affairs where the court never went down this path and simply stuck to the text of the statute. Of course, that would have been vexing, not simply in these kinds of areas, but all kinds of settings in which the courts called on to, you know, interpret and put meat on the bones of individual provisions. But I think you could say that these kinds of cases, I think forced sterilization is an excellent example. They ought never to have gone this way, but they clearly did. And there's very little stomach on the court. Perhaps Justice Thomas might go this route to say that decisions are wrong. And so the burden comes to the pro-life constitutional position to explain what's different about abortion or another very sort of, you know, a decision that people don't question that puts all kinds of pressure on the pro-life position is the constitutional right of, you know, at least as it's written, married people to use contraception in their own home and probably extends, certainly extends to everyone now. How can you 
you know, endorse that case, the Griswold case, and yet nevertheless say that everything about Roe is bankrupt. And I think, as Walter and Leah have said, you have to get into a more nuanced discussion about the state's interest. And I would say not simply in a fetus here, but in in, a, in, in the point where a fetus becomes a human being, but but in the potential, as Walter put it. I'm sorry, Walter, you were you're about to say. Yeah, yeah. I I think that one of the myths that, that's grown up around this is that Roe was too sweeping an intervention, and that if left to its own resources, the political process. Uh, would have eliminated the more uh, restrictive abortion laws and the reform laws were being passed. Uh, but those reform laws generally required a woman who was pregnant and wanted to end her pregnancy to go before a hospital committee, usually made up entirely of male uh, doctors and administrators, and be cross-examined on her reasons. That was the reform legislation. And New York was probably uh, had a good chance of repealing its uh, more lenient uh, restrictions on abortion. So I think that uh, the one thing that Roe did by the sweep of what it did is, um, you know, is protect a greater class of women than would have been protected by a more narrow ban on, on criminalization. And, and we've talked about the sweep. So Amy, can you just, in, in, in a word, you know, what was Rose's solution to the balancing of the state interests and personal interests, and then post Roe, how has the court evolved or changed its its sort of the sort of linchpin of the decision? Sure. So what Roe said, Roe, Justice Harry Blackman and Roe established essentially what what, what the the court called a trimester framework, and in the first trimester of a woman's pregnancy, the Supreme Court said in Roe, the state doesn't really have any interest in protecting the woman's health because abortion at at that point in a woman's pregnancy is actually safer than childbirth. And so the state at that point could only impose basic health safeguards, you know, something along the lines of you'd have to have a license to perform abortions. But this, the sort of the second tier, the second uh, the, sort of the end of the first trimester to the point at which the fetus became viable, the, the Supreme Court said in Roe, the state does have an interest in protecting a woman's health. There can be some regulation. And then the third tier in the Roe framework. And, and what's, what, did, what did the court mean by viable? Uh, viable, the point at which the, the fetus could survive outside the womb if, if it were born. And then the third tier, once the, the fetus could survive outside the womb, uh, the state does have an interest in p- protecting fetal life, the Supreme Court said, and it can regulate or even ban abortion as long as there's an exception for the life or the health of the, of the mother. So that was sort of the, the row framework. But then in 1992, with a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which a challenge to a Pennsylvania law that imposed a variety of restrictions. It required minors to get parental consent. It imposed a 24-hour waiting period, required women who were married to get the consent of their spouses. Three justices, Justices David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and Sandra Day O'Connor, came together and they reaffirmed the basic holding of Roe, the idea that a woman has a right to an abortion before the fetus becomes viable, but they opened the door for more state regulation of abortion. They moved from the trimester framework, um, the idea that 
the state regulation of abortion had to be reviewed for a compelling state interest to a less restrictive standard, whether or not an abortion regulation is going to impose an undue burden on a woman's right to enter pregnancy. Uh, so, yeah, first of all, just one point on Roe. So there, there, it did, it did come into a lot of criticism from different sides for it because, you know, the court's obviously not a board of doctors and it, you had black men for the court, you know, as he always points out, seven to two for the seven court. Seven to two, exactly. Tr- trying to, to sort of employ it. And, and so undue burden does seem more the stuff of what courts generally do, but Anyone know where did it come from and what does it mean? Justice O'Connor had proposed the undue burden standard in a series of abortion cases after Roe was decided. It's a standard that actually calls to mind uh, a standard that the court has applied in voting rights cases as well, where the court Mm -hmm. has inquired whether a voting restriction imposes an undue burden on um, individuals' ability to vote. So the concept was drawn from another area of law and the specific standard being proposed here as applied to abortion, was proposed by Justice O'Connor. And then the court in Casey kind of gave some indication about what the standard meant by proceeding to apply that standard to the Pennsylvania restrictions that were at issue in Casey. And the court upheld most of them and invalidated the restriction that required women to obtain the consent of their spouses before obtaining an abortion. Yeah, I mean, I think of it in general, undue burden is moving to a standard that actually already suggests that the right is tempered. I just want to talk a little bit about nomenclature or whatever. We've thrown around a few like constitutional terms that the court has as well and unenumerated right, liberty component of the due process clause. Also, you hear about substantive due process in this area. What are the stakes of choosing one or another of these terms, do you think? Does it matter or is it just the same difference one way or another of getting at the same concept? I think that one of the problems with uh, the undue burden compromise, that is, Roe tended to preclude regulation in the first trimester. Casey in 1992 was backing away from that to permit regulation of abortion as long as it did not impose an undue burden on a woman seeking abortion. Uh, the problem with that standard has always been, in, in my view, the deep inequality behind it. There's, for any woman who wishes not to continue a pregnancy into, into childbirth, there's no compromise. She either can or she can't. And the undue burden standard tends to draw a line across society on social and economic grounds. It has been used to permit waiting periods, for example, mandatory lectures followed by a 24, 48-hour waiting period, which if you are, say, an affluent stockbroker in a metropolitan area, it may mean you know going on a Monday and a Wednesday. Uh, but if you are a young person in rural North Carolina without ready access to transportation, the um, the high standards that have been imposed for abortion clinics that limit the number of them, coupled with these uh, not undue burden restrictions, can be devastating for, for a young woman who's all of those who are hostage to youth, poverty, or geography. For them, um, this uh, so-called compromise is a sellout in, in many respects where access to abortion is protected for affluent, influential 
of people, but made virtually impossible for uh, those who are of low income and, and otherwise disadvantaged. I'm thinking I'm actually hearing what it's a really good point, and there are all manner of ways that the court permits the you know disadvantaging, putting a thumb on the scale against the abortion decision. Am I hearing a kind of um, quixotic defense on your part of Roe itself? Are you um, yes. uh, championing the original decision and its medical basis? Yes, I am defending the original decision. I think it wasn't well. It wasn't well argued. We didn't quite have uh, at, at Justice Blackman's command, you know, the right way to put it. But there was an instinct on the court's part that this was such an enormous intrusion into a woman's life that that the government needed an especially strong uh, justification. And I think by the sweep of its preclusion of, of regulations, it was in that sense like the preclearance in the Voting Rights Act, it, it showed, I think, a distrust of legislative restrictions and whether they would be legitimate regulations. And I think that instinct on the part of the Roe Court has been borne out as we, you know, we'll get to this later and, and Amy and Lee will be better to speak to the, to the current cases, but it's borne out in the fact that medically unnecessary restrictions have been imposed that actually would completely bar access to many women. If you're in a part of Texas where you've got to make a 300-mile round trip and do it twice, you, first of all, that may be just impossible for women with the you know, daily wage earners. And, and secondly, they lose all privacy in the old traditional sense. Many people have to know what they're doing if, they, you know, if they're doing this. So I think that the the recent history shows the wisdom of, of Rose saying, you know, you just can't impose restrictions in the in the early part of uh, early part of pregnancy. Leah, Amy, what say you? So I'm glad Walter brought this up again, because I think that when we were talking earlier about the fact that Justice Ginsburg has raised questions about Roe, it was more about the reasoning that Walter was alluded to and whether Justice Blackman, for example, wrote the best defense about why abortion is a constitutionally protected right. And one alternative rationale that Justice Ginsburg and academics like Reva Siegel have suggested is that one of the reasons why abortion is a constitutionally protected right is because the ability to decide whether to have a child and when to have a child is integral to women's ability to participate fully in society, um, participate fully politically, participate fully civically, participate fully economically, and so on. And that's particularly true when access to medical care, including access to different forms of contraception, is unevenly available. Um, and it's unevenly available on some of the grounds and for some of the reasons that Walter was alluding to. So there's also an equality-based argument for why abortion is a constitutionally protected right, in addition to the ideas that sound more in liberty and the idea that it is about bodily autonomy. Um, you know, one other kind of facet about why this right is constitutionally protected is that people have questioned whether it is okay to force people to assume an identity that they may might not be completely willing or open to, um, and motherhood carries with it a, a bunch of different societal and uh, political expectations about what that entails. And so ensuring that 
people assume that identity and become a parent when they fully want to be and are quick to be um, is another kind of basis for that right. Well, I want to add one thing in favor of Walter's view, which I take to be not the endorsement jot and tittle of the road decision, but the sense that in a certain period of time, there's a there's a right in the way we traditionally think of a right, a sort of trump card that the woman can simply use without having to answer. And that is that it's an area that I think there's just some way the law should be able to take account of. And right now, it, it really doesn't do it very well. There's Uh, A sense of dishonesty or um, manipulation, I think, to uh, some of the state regulation in this area where the the whiff is so strong that uh, what's really at play is, you know, either discouraging the abortion decision or shaming the woman, et cetera. And yet it's dressed up in terms of protecting the woman's health and other nicer sounding bromides. And the court is not in a position generally to second guess what legislatures are doing. And yet, you know, people who are, I think on both sides of the aisle, who are honest about it and are are in the kind of battle here, understand that there's, you know, a certain measure of hostility or tendentiousness to some of these regulations and being able to not judge them according to why the state says it says them, but just to have a, a trump card, as I say. Harry, let me tell you how seriously um, was the concern in the pro-choice movement over, as we headed into Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, concern about the court adopting uh, more fully this undue burden standard and, and upholding regulations that in the court's view did not constitute an undue burden. There were serious arguments made that we should let Roe versus Wade be overruled. I've never discussed this in public, and that may be a slight overstatement, but the question was, it was assumed that the court was going to essentially overrule Roe versus Wade because there had been four votes to do that in 1989 in the Webster case, and then Justice Clarence Thomas joined the court. And he was seen as, and was, in fact, what would have been the fifth vote. And the question was whether just to go down swinging, let Roe versus Wade be overruled, going into the 1992 election, and using that to galvanize it. If the court had actually uttered the words that four justices were prepared to do in, in Webster and Clarence Thomas would have been the fifth vote, uttered the words Roe versus Wade is hereby overruled, Every political instinct was that it would cause a tsunami in favor of, of the pro-choice position, that we would get enacted a freedom of choice bill in the national legislature, at least to provide national legislative protection, that it was the pro-choice moment, and that uh, that what would happen if the court did not overrule Roe but adopted an undue burden standard is that it would allow more and more regulations that priced and regulated abortion out of the reach of the most vulnerable women. In the end, the decision was we had to do all we could to protect what there was of Roe versus Wade. And I think that was the right decision, but it was a close one. And it was manifested by the fact I, I did the story decisis brief in Planned Parenthood. And the idea was to try to go after Justice Kennedy on story decisis grounds, similar to what we'll, we'll be facing when we discuss the current case. And I think the sentence that Story Decisis Amicus Brief made its way into the court, which is that a generation of women had come of age structuring their lives around 
Roe versus Wade guarantee that the decisions that affected their life would be theirs to make. Uh, and, and that was essentially the, the, the stare decisis argument that carried the day in not overruling Roe and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But we have entered a world in which the regulations have been allowed that make it so difficult for the most vulnerable women. This is really, you know, a huge contribution to history, Walter. I'm sure I'm not the first to tell you that. But but so we now think of Casey when Judge Roberts was in and Judge Kavanaugh and Judge Gorsuch got up at their hearings and said that Roe versus Wade is now super duper precedent. It's because this argument, stare decisis or presidential force prevailed as a central position of the three justices, Souter, O'Connor, and Kennedy. And that has been taken to, you know, reaffirm and make Roe a super duper precedent. But of course, as you say, what does that mean? And what does that leave room for the state still to do? And that's what we'll be moving to now with the latest example. First, though, it's time for a sidebar, which listeners of Talking Feds know that we do in many of our episodes and people who may or may not be known to you often are from other walks of life give an explanation of important terms or concepts in federal law that don't necessarily get spelled out in different TV coverage and the like. So today we're very pleased to welcome D.D. Myers. I'm betting Walter knows her real name. What's D- Anyone know D.D. Myers' real name? I do not. <laughs> all right. For our listeners there, Margaret, uh, a.k.a. D.D. Myers, will now explain to us the role of the Solicitor General, Walter's old job, and the eye of the storm for the government in the Russo case. What does the Solicitor General do? The Solicitor General is the government's chief appellate litigator. He or she conducts and supervises government litigation in the Supreme Court and oversees other appellate litigation involving the government. The Solicitor General is fourth in command at the DOJ and is the only officer of the United States required by statute to be, quote, learned in the law, end quote. The current Solicitor General is Noel Francisco. The Solicitor General's office reviews all cases decided against the government in the lower courts and decides which decisions should be appealed to the Court of Appeal and what positions the government should take with an eye toward consistency and sound strategy throughout the federal system. The Solicitor General also reviews other cases in the Courts of Appeal and considers whether the government will participate as an amicus curiae or intervene. The Solicitor General determines the cases for which the government will seek Supreme Court review. He or she also decides the positions the government will take before the court. When the Supreme Court considers whether it should hear a case, a process called granting certiorari or cert, It often seeks the opinion of the Solicitor General. When the Solicitor General supports a cert grant, the Supreme Court is much more likely to hear the case. In addition, for institutional reasons, the Solicitor General is considered to have a special duty of candor to the court, even if it sometimes means tempering the legal position that the United States takes. For this reason, the Solicitor General is sometimes referred to as the 10th Justice of the Supreme Court. A relatively small staff of staff attorneys, deputy solicitors general, and assistants to the Solicitor General participate in preparing petitions, briefs, and other papers filed by the government in the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General staff often works with lawyers in other parts of the DOJ to best understand and argue a case. The Solicitor General often conducts oral arguments before the Supreme Court. 
where the solicitor general does not personally argue a case, he or she will assign someone from his or her staff or another government attorney to do so. The solicitor general is appointed by the president and must be confirmed by the Senate. Noel Francisco is the 45th solicitor general of the United States. Other notable solicitors general include William Howard Taft, Thurgood Marshall, and Elena Kagan. For Talking Feds, I'm Dee Dee Myers. Thank you very much, Dee Dee Myers, for that explanation. Okay, so let's now move to the Russo case. A very quick setup. Well, Amy, Ms. Scotus Blog co-founder, want to give to us in succinct form the, the issue before the court in the Russo case? Sure. So to, to understand the Russo case in 2020, you have to go back to 2016 to a case called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. And that was a challenge to a Texas law that required doctors who perform abortions, to, among other things, to have the right to admit patients at nearby hospitals, what's called admitting privileges. And this was one of the first major cases that the justices heard in 2016 after the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. So it was an eight-member court. And by a vote of five to three in that case, they ruled that the Texas admitting privileges law for abortion providers was unconstitutional. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote the opinion. He said, you have to look not only at the burdens that this law is going to impose, but also at at the benefits. The state says this is going to help women's health, but there's no evidence that the admitting privileges requirements would have actually helped to, prov- to provide better treatment Spell for anyone. Spell out just a little bit. The state's argument for why it was serving women's health interests and why Breyer for the court said that it's actually yeah, the state's doesn't, argument doesn't that the mustard. is that having this admitted privileges requirement is going to help protect the health of women seeking abortions. There's a couple of different arguments that the state can make. One of them is it ensures that doctors have the, the proper credentials that seeking admitting privileges at local hospitals serves a credentialing function. And the other is that it makes sure that the women who have abortions have what's called continuity of care. If there's an emergency, they can be properly taken care of. Breyer said there's no evidence that having this admitting privilege re- privileges requirement has actually helped to provide better treatment for anyone. But there is evidence, he said, that it has caused clinics to close. Um, so th- the Louisiana law came to the Supreme Court for the first time actually in February of 2019 after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the same court that considered the Texas law, upheld the Louisiana law. So the abortion providers in the June medical case came to the Supreme Court, asked it to temporarily block the state from enforcing the law so they could Wait, file the a petition. Wait, the abortion providers came, not 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 women seeking abortions? Yes, that is, that's and right. Why, a, so why did they... A, a clinic uh, why, why and, did the and doctors, come? they were the ones who were challenging the law rather than women seeking abortions, which will become an issue uh, in the Supreme Court case later on. Um, but so the clinic, the abortion providers came to the Supreme Court last year asked the justices to put the law on hold while they could file their appeal to the Supreme Court. And you need five votes 
to do that. And the chief justice, John Roberts, who had been one of the dissenters in the Texas case, remember Justice Anthony Kennedy by then has retired, joined the court's former liberal justices in giving the abortion providers the stay that they needed. So the law goes on hold. And then last year, the Supreme Court announces that it will take up the abortion provider's case. And they heard oral argument uh, in March. Okay. And I just want to add one point. As the district court here actually determined that there'd only be one doctor in the entire state left performing abortions in the early stages of pregnancy and none after, say, 17 weeks, because a lot of abortion providers don't necessarily have hospital privileges. They can be expensive to maintain. There's a whole political aspect to it. So it looks like the net effect would be to sharply restrict the availability of abortions within Louisiana. Okay. So what do you think? Is there any principled distinction between this case and the Hellerstedt case, the, the Texas case from 2016 that Amy set up? Is there any way that the court can, in good faith, having struck down the Texas statute, uphold this one? So I would answer your question as no. In order to explain why my answer is no, I think it's useful to go back to the standard that the court applied in Casey and Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead. So in the Whole Woman's Health case that Amy was talking about, the court said that the undue burden standard that Casey announced requires courts to weigh the benefits of a law against its burdens. And in particular, in explaining why the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit had made a mistake about what the undue burden standard includes, the Supreme Court had said the undue burden standard requires courts to determine whether a law actually advances a valid purpose rather than just speculating about whether a legislature might have thought that it could advance a valid purpose. So if that's a standard you're applying, even if the inquiry is fact-specific in the sense that it requires courts to consider evidence about whether a law does, in fact, advance a valid purpose and what the law's burdens actually are, in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead, the court resolved whether admitting privileges actually have any health benefits by examining statistics about what admitting privileges requirements do in the United States, given the relative safety of the abortion procedure throughout the United States. Those statistics don't vary state by state, and Louisiana doesn't have any evidence that they vary in Louisiana, even the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in the decision that vacated the district court's injunction against the Louisiana and privileging admitting privileges requirement, stated in a footnote that Louisiana had no evidence that the law would benefit any women. Once right, you concede that, then the benefits part of the equation is the same and the law is invalid, particularly if there's any evidence that the law imposes any burden whatsoever. Because if the law has any ben- has zero benefits, then any burdens are going to outweigh that. And so that's why there's just no reasonable ground on which the court can say, if we are applying the Hellerstead standard, then this Louisiana law is valid. 
So in your view, and by the way, the court was really focused on this, you know, Kavanaugh, here's a Kavanaugh question. Are you saying, he asked to the um, challenge of the statute, that admitting privilege laws are always unconstitutional, such as that we don't have to look at the facts state by state? And I think, Leah, you're saying, well, given the way you decided Hellerstadt, that's right. That's the import of, of what you were saying there was a statement about, you know, admitting privileges generally. Is that fair? Um, I think that's fair. You know, again, it's possible to kind of construct an alternative or imaginary universe in which abortion isn't safe. You know, that is not the world in which we live in. But if it were, then it's possible that some admitting privileges requirements somewhere where abortion was so horribly unsafe that we needed admitting privileges and an admitting privileges requirement actually functioned as a way to credential what would otherwise be horribly unsafe and uncredentialed doctors, then an admitting privileges requirement might be valid. But that's not the case here, nor is there any evidence that that's the case anywhere that an admitting privileges requirement exists in the United States. And of course, the fact that it's safe is one of the explanations for why uh, abortion providers tend not to have admitting privileges. They don't need it for their patients. All right. So one thing you're suggesting, let me know if anyone disagrees with this, that they would need to overrule Hellerstedt if they decided this case on the merits. There is another big issue that I think was elevated over the, you know, and during the argument, a, a way that they could decide the case and not deal with Hellerstedt. Amy, you were at the argument, right? Right. Tell us about the back and forth over standing. Standing. I guess we'll need the 15 seconds. Yes. So standing is whether or not the clinic and the abortion providers have a legal right to sue on behalf of their patients. This is an issue. The state, which won in the lower courts, filed what's known as a cross petition raising this question. And the argument made by the state is that they don't have a a legal right because they actually have, according to the state, a conflict of interest because the women, from the women's perspective, the state says they should have admitting privileges. They should, you know, we, we want the admitting privileges requirement is there for the women's health and safety, whereas from the abortion providers and the clinic's perspective, they they want to get to not have to be subject to this admitting privileges requirement. So this is an issue that was raised by Justice Clarence Thomas in his dissent in the Texas case four years ago. He was the only one who signed on to that position then. Um, before the oral argument, I thought that maybe it might be a way for the Supreme Court to sort of an off-ramp to them to not have to decide whether or not the Louisiana law uh, was sufficiently identical to sort of whether or not the Texas case is going to stay as precedent. There didn't seem, you know, in the oral arguments, you, you take it with a grain of salt, particularly because Justice Neil Gorsuch didn't ask any questions at all. We know how Justice Clarence Thomas stands. The only one of the conservative justices who spoke, who seemed to be really interested in this idea, was Justice Samuel Alito, who asked a lot of questions about the standing issue. Um, you know, at one point, questioning Julie Reichelman, who argued on behalf of the clinic and the doctors when he, she suggested that that they would have standing. He said to her, well, you know, that's amazing. 
Yeah, he said he said that's amazing, right? And but by the way, as an off ramp, this would would not be a sort of small little uh, picayune asterisk. The, the 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 court for going back to Roe has permitted doctors to stand in the shoes of patients given their close relationship and some of the impediments to patients pursuing, yes? Right, exactly. It would be an off-ramp in the sense that they wouldn't have to decide whether or not the Louisiana law was constitutional, but it would still be a, a really big deal. And this was a point that Justice Breyer made. He said, you know, I'm looking and I see eight cases in which we have allowed uh, doctors and clinics to sue on behalf of their patients. Are, are we really going to overturn these? Um, but really sort of, I think the, the, the key moment, there was a point in which I think it was Justice Alito was questioning Jeffrey Wall, the deputy solicitor general who argued on behalf of the United States, which which filed a friend of the court brief supporting Louisiana. And Justice Alito was questioning Jeff Wall about standing. And you could really just almost see the chief justice change the subject. Like, let's talk, let's talk about the merits now. There really didn't seem to be much interest at all among either the chief or Justice Kavanaugh for the standing question. Got it. All right. Well, so we've laid out uh, a few possible positions. One is, you know, strike it down as we did Hellerstedt. One is try, notwithstanding Leah's very forceful analysis, to get a wedge in between them and say on the facts, this one isn't such a bad, isn't an undue burden, whereas Texas's was. The third would be to overrule Hellerstedt, say we were wrong there and therefore it's okay. And the fourth would be to to dismiss it when there's no standing, you, you can't bring the case. A fifth, I suppose, but I think probably no one on this call thinks it will happen, would be to just to use this as some justices seem interested in, in doing to possibly uh, undermine all of the abortion jurisprudence. Any kind of intuitions among the the people here about where you see the court going in the case, which which will be decided by June? You know, this is a tough case for the court because I think there's a real issue of, of judicial integrity here. These laws, both in Texas and Louisiana, are said to be for the interest of protecting women's health. Not They're not being defended on the grounds that of, of protecting of emerging fetal personhood. Not at all. They, in fact, disclaim that, that these are health regulations and uh, should be judged by a, a lax standard the court usually appropriately applies to, to health regulation. But everybody knows it's like in Plessy versus Ferguson when the dissenting justice says everybody knows the real meaning of these segregation laws. Everybody knows that these laws don't protect women's health. Let's just cut right to it. The American Medical Association, which is not often entered into abortion cases the way the OBGYNs have, the American Medical Association says in Hellerstedt, and now we're getting in Louisiana, these laws are actually harmful to women's health. When you make women, when you impose medically unnecessary regulations that cause women to travel hundreds of miles that delay abortion until later in pregnancy by placing these burdens on it, that this is absolutely harmful to women. And so to uphold this is for the court to blind itself to what the medical profession absolutely knows is true. 
you talk to any doctors, they say admitting privileges, that makes no sense. Abortion is so safe. And hospitals often say our standard for admitting privileges is will you admit a given number of patients? Well, abortion is so safe, you don't have hospital admissions. And so it's, uh, it, it's pretextual. Uh, it's, it's shameful. And for a majority of the court to, uh, defer to, to, to what is, uh, you know, obviously ill, you know, ill, ill intended and, and pretextual regulations designed to make it harder and harder for women, regulations that will fall with heavily disproportionate effect on women that are living far away from metropolitan areas without adequate transportation and, and who fear disclosure of, uh, that would be involved in these two distant trips to, to foreign things. I mean, the court will say, well, Louisiana is a smaller state than Texas, so you don't have to drive as far. You can go to Tennessee. And, and I think that given the fact that the, um, the regulations advance no legitimate interest, if truth be told, it makes that, I think, really a, a, a potential stain on the court. Am I being too harsh, folks? No. And why not? Um, because, as Walter was saying, everyone understands the real purpose of these laws. Louisiana, when it Which was enacting, is it's to restrict abortion. When Louisiana enacted this law, it said that the law was modeled after the Texas law that the court struck down in Hellerstead. When Texas enacted that law, you had the lieutenant governor posting a big picture on Twitter saying, look at all of the abortion clinics. This law is going to close. We just did a great thing. Um, there's no real health and safety purpose these laws serve. Um, so what is their purpose? Well, maybe their purpose is the very foreseeable effects, which is to restrict abortion um, uh, in these states. And that seems to be what the states are trying to do. And it would be a real shame if the court, you know, pretended something else was going on here. And, you know, in the wake of the appointments of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, you have a whole series of states really, you could say pushing the envelope, but you could really also say trying to just flat out abrogate Roe with statutes that would be plainly unconstitutional under any vestigial interpretation of Roe, such as heartbeat laws that say if you can detect a heartbeat, you can't have equating a fetus with a heartbeat to a human being and the like. So if they dodge this on standing grounds or maybe even by preserving Hellerstedt, there's going to be other cases, you know, very particular kinds of regulations that nevertheless upholding them would really require them to in everything but name and even in name overrule Roe. All right. Well, that's, I think, where we stand. Everyone keep tuned to this. In a couple months, it will come out. It'll probably be one of those cases with multiple opinions from the court. And all eyes will be on Chief Justice Roberts, who, as Amy said, provided the fifth vote, joined the liberals, even though he'd been on the other side in the Texas case, to grant the stay here that it let this come forward without the, the law being put into effect. All right. That's all we have time for on the Russo case. We end here, as we do in every Talking Feds uh, episode, with a five words or fewer question, which a listener has sent in, and the Feds have to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Twitter listener Michelle Barwell, who asks, will the Supreme Court ever overturn Roe v. Wade. 
And so each of us has to answer that in five words or fewer. Any volunteers to go first? I'll go first. It will never say those words. If Trump wins, then yes. I agree with Leah. In large part, not expressly. Thank you very much to Amy, Leah, and Walter. This has been a really great discussion about abortion jurisprudence generally and the Russo case. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web at talkingfeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. Consulting producer, Andrea Carla Michaels. David Lieberman, Rosie Phillips, and Sam Trachtenberg are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Thanks very much for D.D. Myers for explaining to us the role of the Solicitor General in Supreme Court litigation. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.